Welcome to another episode of The Intellectuals. Uh, the Intellectuals has taken on a negative connotation over the years, but uh, we are the original intellectuals where we actually do pursue truth and don't try to create it. Uh, we have some uh, very interesting guests today uh, that I've been looking forward to conversing with both of them. They're very active right now in a lot of the issues that confront our our soul's nation, uh, our nation's soul. Uh, but before I introduce our guests today, I want to thank Todd Wood and CD Media for graciously providing a platform for this conversation. I want to thank our show's producer, retired Navy Captain Brett Ramsey. I'm Ron Scott. I'm president of Stand Together Against Racism and Radicalism in the Services, a 501c3 nonprofit. Our guests today are Larry Purdy. Uh, he's a 1968 graduate from the United States Naval Academy. And Mr. Scott McQuarrie, a graduate from the United States Military Academy at West Point, uh, 1972. Both of these individuals have been involved in some very historical activities. And so without any further ado, I want to uh, ask our guests some questions. First, uh, Mr. Purdy, can you describe your military background? Sure. And, and explain your transition from being a naval officer to a career in law. Sure. Uh, well, thanks very much, uh, Mr. Scott, for having us on. Uh, I, as you mentioned, I graduated in 1968 from the Naval Academy. Uh, ended up uh, spending five years in the Supply Corps um, for a host of reasons, and um, uh, including a year that time in Vietnam. Uh, came home, uh, was with the Joint Command before I completed my five-year commitment, got out in 1973, moved back to Minnesota, went to law school, and as of the end of this month, I'll have completed 45 years of uh, law practice in, the, in private practice. Uh, during the course of that time, of course, I was involved in the uh, Gruder and Gratz cases at the U.S. Supreme Court, and that's the principal reason we're probably talking today. So Great. And for our audience, could you remind them what that Gruder case was all about? Sure. Well, uh, there were two cases, uh, uh, Barbara Gruder versus University of Michigan. Uh, uh, Lee Bollinger, actually, is the president at the time, uh, concerning race preferences, uh, race preferences in admissions to the law school. Uh, we had a companion case called Jennifer Gratz versus Lee Bollinger et al., uh, that involved the undergraduate University of Michigan admissions uh, policies, both heavily uh, race um, uh, race conscious, but entirely different systems. Um, we tried the, the, the Gruder case actually in federal court for about a month in 2001. We won the trial, uh, got a wonderful opinion from the trial judge, and then it went up through the Sixth Circuit and then eventually the Supreme Court. We had one uh, on um, summary judgment, the Gratz case, so we never tried that lawsuit. Uh, and that, that case actually went to the Supreme Court together with uh, Gruder, and the Supreme Court affirmed our uh, win in, in Gratz. They actually ruled that the un undergraduate uh, system was unconstitutional, but it was dramatically different uh, from the Gra uh, Gruder case. Gruder was a holistic, if you will, I'm using the term that the university used. Um, it was a holistic policy that didn't involve points. 
it 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 uh, but it heavily involved race heavily. Um, Gratz had point a point system where race amounted to a very large um, bonus, uh, and that was the difference. So the Supreme Court said that's not good. They threw it out, uh, but they left uh, uh, the law school with their with their um, their victory, if you will, overturning our trial court victory. Um, I mean, I could go into all the details involving the Gruder case, but it's it was. Um, the, the bottom line is race was heavily, heavily factored into who received a, a, an offer of admission to the law school. And we proved that at trial, uh, but the Supreme Court ignored that. Well, we're going to circle back to that here in a little bit, Mr. Purdy. Um, for, for now, Mr. McQuarrie, could you uh, answer the same question, your military background and your transition into the legal career field? Sure. Thanks for uh, having me today. Uh, I graduated from West Point in 72, as you said, commissioned into the infantry, uh, did all the typical schooling at those of those days for infantry officers, airborne, ranger, and that sort of thing. Uh, went to my first assignment as a mech infantry platoon leader, uh, got involved uh, on the legal side of things and decided I wanted to go to law school, so did so on an Army program. Uh, after three years in the infantry, uh, after law school, went back into the army as a JAG officer, served over four years as a JAG, um, and then decided uh, that private practice seemed a bit more appealing for me personally, so did so, got out and went with a, a large uh, firm in Texas, which had offices all over the country, really, it's now a global firm, uh, stayed with that firm for 25 years um, uh, as a litigator um, and then retired in uh, 2007. Um, that's basically how I uh, had my career went professionally. I didn't get involved in any sort of civil rights litigation while at that firm. <clears throat> my involvement in these issues began only after I left uh, and retired from that firm. Okay, now you've stood up an outfit called Veterans for Fairness and Merit, of VFM. It's a 501c19. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about VFM, uh, why you did it, and uh, what you've done with it so far? Sure. Uh, Veterans for Fairness and Merit uh, is an idea that came to mind a couple of years ago after I had um, begun thinking about the legal ramifications of what I had learned was happening at our service academies. Um, that uh, began partly as a result of my two of my children applying to the service academies, West Point and getting in, uh, in 2002 and 2005. Um, during which processes I became pretty familiar with the, the, the application process and the decision process at the academies. And what I was learning back then was, was disconcerting. Um, I was, it, it became evident to me uh, that even before then, the service academies had begun using racial preferences in their admissions processes, which of course differ, as you know, from the admissions processes for most colleges. 
um, that is, they're prescribed by statute, uh, by federal statute. And um, although some of the procedures that they go through are uh, still uh, similar to what happens in college admissions. So with the concerns that I had, uh, of course, being a lawyer, it, it began bothering me that um, that the service academies were using something other than best qualified uh, when they had discretion for admitting people to the academies. And so I began looking into it and realized that uh, there was this case history, the Gruder case in 2003, and then the, uh, the Fisher versus University of Texas cases, and which the opinions for which were issued in 2013 and 2016, Fisher one and Fisher two, respectively. And um, uh, I I learned in that process that a group of, of uh, retired three and four stars, led by a West Point graduate by the name of Joe Reeder, who had been an Army Undersecretary during the Clinton administration had filed amicus briefs, friend of the court briefs, uh, supporting the use of racial preferences in college admissions. Um, when I began reading those briefs, uh, I realized that those briefs were advancing something that was just not true, uh, factually not true. And, and, and I thought, well, the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court bought it in 2003 as, as uh, Mr. Purdy will, I'm sure, explain the Supreme Court then <clears throat> not only agreed with what was in those briefs, uh, in that brief that year, uh, but quoted it in their majority opinion uh, to demonstrate the degree to which they were relying on uh, the factual misrepresentation in that brief. That representation was that uh, it's essential to national security, to boil it down into just a, a sentence or two, that it was essential to national security that DOD be permitted to use racial preferences in service academy admissions. Um, the claim being that achieving something close to uh, racial demographic parity between the officer ranks and the enlisted ranks was essential to national security and that it was essential to achieve that, to use racial preferences in the admissions uh, programs at the service academies, as well as at colleges that have ROTC. Um, it's been my firm belief all along, uh, ever since before these issues, that, that uh, racial demographic parity has nothing to do with the combat effectiveness of our military, our warfighters, are trained to obey the orders of their superiors, regardless of the skin color of their superiors. Uh, and in reality, on the battlefield, um, when bullets are whizzing by and mortar shells are landing, no one cares about skin color. They just don't. And so for this group of, of distinguished three and four stars to represent to the Supreme Court that it is essential to national security that racial preferences be allowed and which requires the suspension of a part of the Constitution to facilitate that uh, is just false, it's just not true. Um, and so I concluded that the only way to try to 
correct this was to have an amicus brief stating the other side and to do so in a way that hadn't done before, that is with a large group of veterans, mostly combat veterans. Um, and it, the, the evolution of the idea resulted in the idea to form uh, Veterans for Fairness and Merit, a 501c19 that would uh, that would be composed of mostly combat veterans of all ranks, and officer and enlisted, um, and who could credibly uh, try to demonstrate to the Supreme Court the fallacies, the factual inaccuracies, really, of the position that had been being advanced, not only in the Grutter case, but in Fisher 1 and in Fisher 2, and that we expected would be advanced again in the, the current Harvard and UNC cases. Now, I have to confess to the public that I am honored to be one of the members that signed on to your amicus brief. Uh, <laughs> it was it was an honor to do that. But now in approaching a lot of these retired flags, general officers and admirals, you had two individuals, if I'm not mistaken, and I don't want you to name them, two individuals that had signed on to the reader brief that admitted that they didn't completely understand the uh, the essence of what that brief was all about. Can you share your insights there? Sure, that's, uh, you're correct. Uh, one of our strategies uh, was to try to make contact with some of the folks who had uh, been named friends of the court in Mr. Reeder's brief uh, that was filed in 2015 in the Fisher 2 case. We had only moderate success in actually getting through to some of them, but we did. And uh, the, the bottom line was uh, it, the appearance from what they said was that they had not understood the full import of the, the reader brief, the brief that had been filed in 2015 that their names were on, um, that they thought that those briefs basically stood for the principle of equal opportunity, which of course is what we stand for, equal opportunity, regardless of one's skin color. Um, uh, and so, uh, at least in those two cases, those two, uh, and they're both four stars, uh, one Army, one Air Force, uh, are among the 19 of the 33 three and four stars that were on the 2015 brief who are not on the 2022 brief that was filed. Uh, that is a majority of the three and four stars whose names appear on the 2015 amicus brief led by Mr. Reeder did not appear on the 2022 brief. Now, two of those 19 had passed uh, but 17 of them had not. Uh, and, and the two that I'm referring to that we spoke with uh, are among those 17. One of those two actually became a member of VFM, um, an Air Force four-star who was, has a, a very strong reputation for having moral courage. Uh, and so we were very proud that that particular uh, gentleman decided to follow his convictions 
And once learning the actual uh, landscape and, and what the other side's brief stood for and what our brief would stand for, elected to, to uh, stand with us. Which I thought was incredible, but it, it did, didn't surprise me because I know the individual you're speaking, I, I served under his command and what an exemplar he is in terms of our core values in the Air Force of integrity first, service before self, and excellence in all that we do. Now with that, I wanna circle back to uh, Mr. Purdy in the Gruder case. Now, Mr. Purdy, you've written an excellent book. It came out in 2008, the title, Getting Under the Skin of Diversity, Searching for the Colorblind Ideal. It's just an excellent book with tremendous evidence to support the arguments and the claims uh, that you've made. But in that book, you talk about Justice O'Connor inexplicably using another book written by Derek Bach and William Bowen, two famous academics. The title of the book was The Shape of the River. Can you share with our audience the significance behind that? You bet. Um, uh, first, let me congratulate uh, Mr. McCary for what he's done with uh, VFM and what the, you both have done with the, that brief. I mean, it's it's uh, it, it's an outstanding rebuttal to the to the retired officer's brief. That's what I've always called it since Gruder. Uh, we we uh, but what happened is the the shape of the river was written by a former Harvard president and law school Derek Bach and William Bowen, a former president of Princeton. I, I would I would argue it was the most prominent impetus um, behind the decision eventually reached in Gruder. They 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 come out uh, basically in favor of the race preferences, um, but when you carefully read their book and it's a long book with a lot of data, uh, but once you carefully read it, you can start to see the. It, it, it fall, uh, the, the rationale falls away very quickly. So my book uh, is actually was, uh, it's 10 chapters, I think, and basically it was my outline anticipating that uh, Derek Bach and or uh, William Bowen would appear at trial. Um, Bach was listed as an expert in the law school case, Gruder, uh, and I believe Bowen was listed only in the undergraduate case. And as I said, we, that never went to trial. Um, they withdrew, the university withdrew Derek Bach as a witness at trial, so I never got the chance to cross it. But what you have in that book is all the material that I had gathered about their previous writings, the previous books they had, they had written, their previous views on the use of race preferences, and all you have to do, I won't bore you or the audience with it, but if you read my book, you'll see that the positions they took in the, the shape of the river uh, conflicted pretty strongly with uh, the positions that they had stood by for a very long time. Also of interest, the book was published right around the time these Michigan cases were going. I, uh, I, I don't want to suggest uh, any conspiracy to get it published before the Supreme Court decided their case, but you could draw your own conclusion. Um, you know, I uh, that's the book is mainly a, a, a discussion of the shape of the river because it did play, as uh, Mr. McCary said, it 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 played a role. Uh, was cited by Justice O'Connor in her opinion, and I think was probably the principal um, um, document 
uh, she relied on in, in coming to her decision, which was very unfortunate. Well, what I find ironic is your book is published in the same time frame that the Congressional Black Caucus in Congress established the Military Leadership Diversity Commission in the fiscal year 2009 National Defense Authorization Act. That was in the fall of 2008. Within a month of a new president's inauguration, the Department of Defense issued its first instruction with diversity management in the same title with equal opportunity. Less than a month after the inauguration, <clears throat> three years later, an executive order is issued, August of 2011, establishing diversity and inclusion officers across the entire federal government. Today, we have diversity and inclusion officers at our service academies. We see them at the state level, governments, uh, county, city, and uh, across corporations. Uh, USAA Today, which I have the, the privilege of having them for my automobile and house insurance, uh, refused to provide diverse, uh, director and officer liability insurance for the organization that I represent because we were too controversial. I checked, they also have a diversity and inclusion staff. So we, we see a movement across our nation that really started about the time your book was published, establishing people to advocate and enforce thinking as it's related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. So with that, uh, Mr. McQuarrie, uh, your amicus brief was presented to the Supreme Court this past fall, and arguments were presented, uh, and we should see some sort of a ruling this coming June. Uh, what is your sense for the, the nature of those arguments and what you think will happen in terms of that uh, particular case, Harvard and University of North Carolina? Right. Um, well, just so that you, your audience uh, knows the context here, there were two lawsuits brought by uh, an organization named Students for Fair Admissions, or SFFA, Students for Fair Admissions, one against Harvard University, in which it was alleged that uh, Harvard had engaged in discrimination against Asian American applicants. Um, and then uh, about at the same time, another lawsuit, again, by the same organization against University of North Carolina, alleging discrimination against Asian American and white American applicants. Both cases uh, <clears throat> proceeded. The Harvard case went all the way through trial. Harvard won uh, a trial. <clears throat> the Court of Appeals uh, affirmed the judgment in Harvard's favor, and it was then appealed to the Supreme Court. During the pendency of the Harvard case, the UNC case for years was on hold, but eventually uh, it proceeded to summary judgment, and UNC won. That was appealed to uh, the Court of Appeals, but also an appeal was filed at the Supreme Court after the Supreme Court had granted writ of certiorari uh, in the Harvard case. And then the court combined those two cases, or I should say consolidated those two cases. Uh, uh, and so the idea was that they would proceed together at the Supreme Court. Uh, 
Um, eventually, with the uh, ascension of Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson to the bench, because she had a board position at Harvard, uh, she wanted to recuse herself from the Harvard case, but wanted to participate in the UNC case. So they were de- the two cases were deconsolidated. Um, oral argument uh, proceeded with respect to both cases on October 31st. Um, our brief having been filed, by the way, in May of 2022, uh, and Mr. Reader's group filing their brief uh, in August, joined this time notably by the Solicitor General. And that's, that ought not be, the significance of that is, is uh, great and ought not be overlooked because in those two cases, we now have the Solicitor General stating the position of the United States being that uh, racial preferences should be used in college admissions, but especially as argued, in fact, by General Preligar at the, at the oral arguments on October 31st, that there is a, a, a significant distinction and an important critical distinction, she argued, for the military academies. That is that the court should, should uh, regard the, the service academies in some special light uh, when it makes its decision in those two cases. The, uh, I, I expect a decision in those cases uh, on or before June, actually because they were argued fairly early in the term uh, and uh, were, uh, at least the Harvard case had been at the court for quite a long time. I would think that those opinions will work their way through the system there at the court and be published before June. At least that's what my guess would be. No one really knows, though. As far as the outcome is concerned, of course, it's hazardous, as I'm sure Mr. Purdy would attest to. It's always hazardous to try to guess what the court is going to do. But I think we can say, at least my view is the following. I think that there's enough on record already to, to be able to say uh, that uh, Justice Clarence Thomas and Justice Alito and uh, and possibly even Justice Gorsuch uh, will likely side with students for fair admissions. I think we could probably also safely assume that the three so-called liberal justices on the court um, Justices Kagan, Sotomayor, and um, Katanji Brown-Jackson will side with the universities, leaving the three in the middle, uh, the Chief Justice, uh, Justice Chief Justice Roberts, uh, and uh, Justice Kavanaugh, and Justice Coney Barrett. Uh, I, I don't know what Mr. Purdy thinks, but uh, there's enough written by Chief Justice Roberts, uh, particularly his the somewhat famous uh, words uh, in, I think, the 2007 opinion that he wrote the plurality opinion for in a Supreme Court case involving a similar issue and where he said that the way to uh, end discrimination uh, on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. One reads that quote often when reading about these cases. Uh, it's it's an oft-quoted line. And I think that 
Chief Justice Roberts would be hard pressed to change his position um, in these cases. Now, I don't know that he would go so far as to overrule Bruder, um, which is being sought by students for fair admissions. Um, and it is, I think, notable that he did not join in the uh, majority of the court when they overruled Roe versus Wade. He joined in the result, but he didn't join in the, the further step of overruling, expressly overruling Roe versus Wade. Um, <clears throat> so I'm hoping, I, I'm optimistic that the Chief Justice is going to rule in favor of students for fair admissions. Um, it's hard to say about Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Coney Barrett, but if I had to roll the dice uh, and just guess, I would I would guess that they would likely rule in favor of students for fair admissions. So I think I think there's a lot of optimism, a lot of reason to be optimistic. And, and your thoughts, those cases. Yeah. And your thoughts, Mr. Purdy. Well, I share uh, uh, Mr. McQuarrie's. Um, Assessment. I mean, it, I I will be the first to tell you that you, uh, you you you. It's very dangerous to try and predict what any justice is going to do. Um, you think you know. Uh, you you think you pick up something during oral argument, and then uh, you'll you'll be surprised. Um, but I I, I maintain uh, my optimism about this, and uh, you know we'll probably know. <laughs> I, I will say this. I bet the opinions, I, and again, this is just guess, but, you know, we're, we're just talking between us. Uh, uh, I bet the opinions are basically done. Um, it, it, the, the reason they may not be released um, before June is actually a practical one, which is throwing all the admi uh, admissions <laughs> that will be coming up this, this spring and after the first of the year. I mean, you're, you're really throwing a wrench in it, if, depending upon how they how they would. If it, if it were to come out where they were overruling Gruder, uh, you would have kind of a mess on your hands. And as a practical matter, they, they may just wait. And typically they hold these very controversial opinions towards the end of the term, which would be the end of June. So um, that's what that's what I, you know, that's what I think will happen. And as I say, I, I certainly hope they they overrule Gruder. Um, I wanted to I, I wanted to make a point um, uh, about the, the the military. You know what what was fascinating is after Gruder. Uh, uh, let me just remind our our listeners the the uh, Solicitor General at the time Ted Olson and the George Bush administration came out in favor. They supported our position in Grutter. They were they were behind the opposition to race preferences, and they were actually fairly strong about it. So, uh, in contrast to the Solicitor General in these recent cases, uh, the Solicitor General actually argued on our behalf. And uh, you have to understand, this is the Commander in Chief. <laughs> you know, it was his his Solicitor General, and uh, with the 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 discussion about the, the the military did come up in oral argument, and I can't remember. I I should remember, but I I can't remember who first raised it. I think it may have been Justice Stevens, and Justice Ginsburg may also have said something about it. Uh, but uh, uh, Solicitor General Olson uh, dismissed it. 
it hadn't been part of the case. And obviously, we were a little surprised uh, when the military amicus brief was filed. Um, and we didn't have one in response. Um, but that it wasn't part of the case. And, and in fact, the, the, the same brief, the reader brief, was also filed in the undergraduate case. And of course, the court ruled in our favor in the undergraduate case. So it didn't carry any weight in that regard. Uh, but nevertheless, um, it did it did carry weight in the in the law school case, and we're living with it. The the military leadership diversity commission that started, and again, I I can't recall exactly when it was. Sometime I think in the Obama beginning of the Obama administration, and they delivered a a report. I want to say in 2011, and many of the uh, individuals that. Uh, were on the initial military brief in, in Gruder were actually chaired the the commission that that put all that, those uh, recommendations together and they clearly relied on Gruder and and they say some astounding things in that that they say things for example that treating you know while it's important that everybody get treated fairly that doesn't mean treating everyone the same I mean it, it, it <coughs> comments. Uh, <coughs> And um, and clearly they were they argued throughout. Uh, it's very lengthy. I mean the report. Um, I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not sure, Scott, if you can remember the number of pages. It's lengthy. This commission report, and they talk about seeking demographic parity uh, with the nation. That's that. So basically, doing something that was even ruled to be unconstitutional, even at Gruder. I mean, seeking to do that was, you know, was not approved in Gruder, but nevertheless, the military, that's their, that's their, that became their view. And it's still their view, um, which is unfortunate. Um, so. Now you're referring to the Military Leadership Diversity Commission. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes. In the 2009 National Defense Authorization Act. And I believe General Lester Lyles chaired that group. Yep. And they, well, and there were, there were several, I, there were several members, uh, more than one, that uh, were reading amicus brief back in in two um, that were part of the commission military leadership diversity commission I think was the MLDC that's what I remember so right um, yeah it's now, uh, now gentlemen what what is your thought if the Supreme Court rules in favor of doing away with the affirmative action uh, practices at Harvard and uh, UNC, is there a, a chance, given precedence, that they'll carve out an exemption for the Department of Defense? I I could say this: there would be no basis for doing it other than these uh, amicus arguments. And given uh, what VFM has done, I think they'd be very hard pressed to 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 do that. I I know people have talked about it. Uh, I'd be interested in Miss um, McQuarrie's. Uh, view on that uh, but i think that would be very hard to do because there really is very little support for the arguments that the the, the pro-preference officers have made um, and a lot of reasons that they shouldn't uh, do that um, as outlined in the vfm brief so i i would i would actually be surprised if they did that i i'm not saying someone might not mention it hopefully in a dissent <laughs> as I'm putting it. Uh, but, um, I, I, you know, uh, Scott, I don't know what you think. 
Yeah, I have a, actually a significant amount of concern. Uh, just thinking realistically about it, uh, I am concerned that there will be a carve out uh, in some way. Uh, I approach it from this standpoint. Um, if the opinion is silent about how the ruling affects the military, um, I believe the Pentagon will continue to do what it's been doing, um, which would not be good. Uh, if the opinion has just a comment, just a couple of words that says, and this applies to all government agencies, um, then that would not be a carve out. But if the if the court takes the position that, well, you know, the, the, the military, the Defense Department is not a defendant in this case. There has been no uh, allegation against the military. There's been no development of, of evidence. There's been no presentation of evidence at a trial. There's been no development of a record, what lawyers call a record, um, for us to look at. Um, they might say, we're going to preserve this for another day. We'll preserve whether or not this decision should apply to the military to another day. And the reason I think that could happen is that at oral argument, the Chief Justice in the, in the UNC case, the Chief Justice specifically asked the Solicitor General whether, to use his words, the court's opinion or decision should, uh, actually, whether he, he said uh, whether the cases for the military academies should rise or fall on the court's decision in the UNC and Harvard cases. In other words, he invited the Solicitor General to ask the court for a carve out. She didn't go all the way with that. She, what she answered was that uh, they, uh, the court should look at the service academies in a special light, that there are critically important distinctions for the service academies. In other words, she gave the court the reasons for a carve-out, but she didn't expressly ask for a carve-out. Um, and I'm concerned, particularly, that Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Kavanaugh might want to defer, following the general doctrine of judicial deference, might want to defer to the Defense Department in as much as the position of the United States, as articulated in their brief and at oral argument, is that uh, the, the military has a distinctive interest and that it is essential to national security that they be allowed to do this. Now that's the factual predicate of that argument, I believe is false. And our brief attempted to disabuse the court of, of that position, but whether or not um, five justices will will go along with the, uh, our position, I think is un, unclear. Justice Kavanaugh, for example, in the vaccine cases earlier this year, um, when he didn't have to, did defer to the Defense Department. Uh, I don't recall specifically the language that he used, but the, the upshot of it was that he was very, very reluctant to rule in such a way as to be contrary to the stated position of the Department of Defense. Now that was a that was a, a religious 
issue, that is the, the free exercise of religion, was the constitutional right there, not not uh, the one we're talking about here, equal uh, treatment before the law. Um, but the the other side of that uh, is military readiness, and and I'm concerned that our justices may feel like they should not uh, rule against the Defense Department's position on what is necessary for military readiness. Um, we'll see. Uh, it's I think it's difficult. I've had people whose opinion I respect tell me they think the court will carve out the military from their ruling. I agree <clears throat> with the with Mr. Purdy's statement that, uh, in fact, <clears throat> they shouldn't, uh, and that there's not a sufficient evidentiary basis for them to do so. And just on a policy level, <clears throat> pardon me, on a policy level, imagine if the country is told by the Supreme Court that the country, in effect, has to follow the 14th Amendment equal protection of law but our military does not. Um, I don't think that would be helpful to the relationship between our military establishment and the public. In fact, I think it would be very harmful uh, at a time when, as you probably have noted, um, the public's confidence in the military has diminished somewhat in the last, or, or trust, I should say, I think is the word from the polling that has reflected that. And, and it, it ought not be lost on the court uh, when they're considering this issue that 74% of Americans, including a majority of blacks, when polled in March of this year by the Pew Research Organization, said that they oppose the use of racial preferences in college admissions. 74%. That's a very strong majority. And again, of of the people polled, 50, I think it was 59% of Blacks said they opposed the use of racial preferences. I, absent some evidence that the American people, as a, as a group, believe that the military alone should be permitted to, in effect, suspend application of the Equal Protection Clause and use racial preferences in admissions, and as our brief showed, actually they're doing it in other areas as well. Um, I, I think it would be a huge mistake for the court to go there. Let, well, let, what, uh, if I could just jump in just briefly. I, I agree completely. And I think it's not only the 14th Amendment. I think it's the language from uh, Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Absolutely. I mean, it. If, uh, to suddenly say or even suggest that in race conscious uh, policies in the military would be a, a direct violation of not only the Equal Protection Clause, but of the language of the Civil Rights Act. And I, I just, uh, that's why I, I can't imagine, well, I, I say I can't imagine this is again, you know, uh, w you know wishful thinking because we don't know. But I would be surprised uh, if they if they did that, um, because it would be so contrary to the interests of, of the country, and not only the military, but to the country as a whole. So I'm, I'm hopeful they won't do it. I, I certainly um, um, 
you know, I, I'm not going to, I can't make any ironclad prediction because we just don't know. But what we're, we have to, but what's important to appreciate here is for the first time, we have the Solicitor General coming in stating the position of the United States to be that it's necessary, especially for the Department of Defense and for the reason that it is necessary for national security purposes. <clears throat> and uh, and that hasn't that was not the case, I think, previously. Um, and uh, and so you know, we've got this added element here that the United States has come into the court and said, uh, we must do this, especially for the military, to preserve our national security. Now, again, I, I believe that argument is just completely false, uh, but uh, that's an argument that, that hasn't been made by the United States at the Supreme Court previously in these cases, and that's what worries me. Well, well I think the... Uh, tested either. It hasn't been tested in court. Yeah. Right. Well, and I think what we're, we're talking about is something that uh, uh, addresses our culture the American culture and how it's changing. Um, and this is an example of that change. And so one last uh, question uh, before we move on to some closing statements. Uh, yesterday I received in my inbox a letter that the West Point superintendent sent out to the long gray line announcing that they were removing anything associated with Lee, changing Lee barracks to another name taking down Lee monuments and whatever. And this was in response to uh, direction received from the Department of Defense. Now, I don't want to put Mr. McCory on the spot. He's a West Point graduate. And this kind of touches upon uh, a, a political effort at play. But I just want to just say that that's playing out right now at West Point. Now, two years ago, Mr. Purdy sent a letter to the U.S. Naval Academy Board of Visitors concerned about actions that they were taking related to two other Naval Academy graduates. Can you give us a quick little summary of that, Mr. Purdy? Well, sure. Actually, they, they didn't involve Naval Academy graduates. They involved the actual founder of the Naval Academy uh, in 1845, uh, 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 I, I want to say Franklin Buchanan, uh, and then involved uh, uh, a, a, a gentleman named Maury, was an oceanographer, noted oceanographer. Uh, both of these gentlemen had buildings named after them. The super, he was the first superintendent of the Naval Academy was Buchanan. So the superintendent's residence was named Buchanan House and there's a road in front of it that bears his name. There's a Maury Hall, M-A-U-R-Y uh, on the uh, campus and it was named after Maury. Both of these gentlemen at the Civil War uh, I, Maury, I believe, was Virginian, and Buchanan was a Marylander, and uh, when they thought that uh, Maryland was going to secede, he, he, he decided to go with his state, that was Buchanan, and Maury went with uh, Virginia. Uh, neither one uh, reportedly ever owned a slave. They were not slaveholders. They, their, their decisions obviously rested on, on issues having nothing to do with slavery. In fact, Maury was noted to be looking at ways to try to end slavery. Um, but because of their association with the um, Confederacy, uh, their names are now being removed. This is part of this renaming commission that, where they're renaming the forts and the uh, various, and I'm sure this is part of the uh, 
actions at West Point involving uh, Robert E. Lee. Um, my letter simply said, you know, why should we be doing this for a whole bunch of reasons, not to defend anyone that necessarily aligned with the Confederacy, but there's a, a huge context involved. And if people look at it, uh, I think they would, you know, there's there's a lot of reasons not to be changing our history and and or eliminating the ability to actually discuss our history. Um, and so I sent a letter in um, in back in I, th- I want to say June, July of 2020 to the Board of Visitors for the Naval Academy and to the superintendent and uh, never received a response. Um, and um, Obviously, it didn't bear any weight because the decision has already been made to remove those names. Um, I, so that's that's where we stand. And well, this is to me this is so symbolic of what we're up against. Uh, America is under an ideological assault right now, and there's a professor from the University of Ghent that just came out this year with a very sobering book. The title is The Psychology of Totalitarianism, written by Matthias Desmet, a clinical psychologist. And so he's trying to analyze what's happening in the Western culture, not just in America, primarily America is a focus in his book. But uh, totalitarianism is, is such a dangerous thing. And so a lot of the things that we're talking about right now is a matter of ideology, uh, not so much truth and justice. And so I, I, I can't thank both of you gentlemen enough for the roles that you've taken on to address some of these issues in the courts, uh, you know, embracing the rule of law and uh, what America's supposed to be, a nation ruled by laws, not men. Uh, so with that uh, as a tee up, uh, any closing thoughts for our audience, uh, and, and in particular, what they might be able to do to uh, to fight on the side of truth and justice. Scott, Mr. Corey, I'll, I'll let you lead. Sure. Um, well, to, to tie what you just said into uh, part of what we're trying to do, I think the American people need to, to know that what is at stake here uh, for the military includes the preservation of a battle-tested time-tested cultural norm uh, that some people refer to as the selfless servant warrior ethos. That requires total subordination of self. People don't become warriors. That is, folks who go into the military don't become warriors just by getting into better physical shape, learning how to shoot a a rifle or some sort of weapon. or navigate a ship or fly an airplane, they become warriors also in a cultural transformation where they they learn to completely subordinate their instinctive uh, self-preservation tendency. Um, In the military, you, you put your lives on the line, but you, in doing so, you, you, uh, you learn, to subordinate yourself uh, to the mission and to your buddies. When you're on the battlefield, you're fighting to to get whatever the mission happens to have been uh, specified to be, 
you're going to accomplish that mission, even if it means your life. You're also going to do whatever you have to do, including risking your life to save your buddies. Now, that total subordination of self requires also the subordination of subgroup identities. That is, we can't think in terms of, well, this person's skin color is that, or this person's national heritage is, is whatever it might be, and I identify more with that. So the, the selfless servant uh, warrior ethos requires that we regard someone's heritage or their, their ethnicity or their skin color as completely insignificant and, uh, and not something that should interfere with decision-making. Well, if, as is happening today, we, we continually focus on race and racial differences that erodes the, the preeminence of the selfless servant warrior ethos. We're no longer totally selfless if we're thinking in terms of race, if we're favoring one race over another, or if we're thinking of one race um, oppressing or victimizing another race. And so it's that cultural erosion that I believe is at stake here. We've got to reverse this trend for our military to be combat effective. We've got to get back to this, the, the aspirational goal of the Equal Protection Clause that is that we become a colorblind society. Uh, and the military proved through the 1970s, 80s, and 90s that we could do that effectively. Our military did that. I saw it. Um, uh, and so that's an achievable goal. Become a, becoming a colorblind society is an achievable goal. For the military, it's an imperative, actually, for us to be combat effective. Most people don't understand that. I, I don't think our Supreme Court necessarily understands that in the military context. Again, that was part of why we did our brief. But I think the, Mer the American people need to understand that there is a there's a real value to colorblindness as, as required by our constitution. Um, and so I would, I would leave you with that thought. We've got to refocus. Um, we, can, we need to be respectful and be dignified in the way we treat all of our fellow citizens for sure. Um, and that needs to be done and, and there should be no deviation from that. But that doesn't mean that we should become focal. Uh, we should begin focusing on our on our differences. That will weaken us militarily. Great. Thanks, Mr. McQuarrie. Mr. Purdy, your thoughts? Well, I let, let me just say uh, everything McQuarrie has said. Um, I, I think the answer is actually pretty simple. Racial or wrong is repugnant. It's part of our past and years we've gotten away from it look back at Plessy versus Ferguson um, when uh, uh, racial segregation and discrimination based on race was the law of the land and it took us uh, uh, almost 60 years to 1954 in Brown versus Board of Education to, to get this ruling and bear in mind to me Brown greatest case ever decided that's that's my firm view it's the most important case that the Supreme Court has ever handed down. 
because nine justices unanimously ruled that racial discrimination in public education is unconstitutional, and there were no exceptions. The next sentence in the opinion made clear there are no exceptions. Anything that would even permit racial discrimination in education uh, was uh, would not be tolerated. And then you add to Brown, you add the uh, language of Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, where it's very clear racial discrimination is not going to be tolerated, particularly where the government's involved. Those are the three, I think those are the three pillars, the, four, the Equal Protection Clause, the 14th Amendment, Brown versus Board of Education, and Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. If the court looks at the language, it's very simple. It's very straightforward. Uh, Justice Thomas has clearly pointed this out in, in several opinions. Uh, I, I think Justice Alito agrees with him. I, I am hoping that a majority of the court will agree with him, and I'm actually hopeful that they will agree with him. There's no place for racial discrimination, and least of all, in our military. So that, that's my final statement. Great. Thanks, Mr. Purdy. Our, our guests today, uh, Scott McQuarrie and Larry Purdy, uh, these are soldiers fighting to preserve what we all have learned to know and love as America. And uh, we can't thank you enough for what you've done uh, to preserve that. And for those that want to learn more, uh, visit our website, www.starswith2rs.us, starswith2rs.us. And we will post uh, some materials from both. Uh, Mr. Purdy and, and Mr. McQuarrie on the website to give you a little bit more information in terms of uh, uh, some of the things that they've been doing in this fight. So again, uh, Mr. McQuarrie and Mr. Pur Purdy, thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, we've got a long fight ahead of us. Yep. Uh, we do. Thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. Yep. Have a good day. Yes, sir.